0: Welcome on back ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Northern Miner podcast and I am your host Matthew Keevil. As usual we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do head over to YukonMiningAlliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is episode 83 for the week of December 4th. You may have caught our holiday ditty there to start the show. Uh, And yes, indeed, as promised, I will be rolling out some festive goodies as we move through December to keep everybody in the holiday spirit. And this week, we do have Leslie swinging by with another great edition of the Geology Corner, Uh, this one featuring some exclusive content from her trip down to Beaver Creek, Colorado for the Precious Metals Summit, another great segment with Leslie. Uh, Meanwhile, our sponsor Spotlight features Walter Siegelkow, the president and CEO of Hardline solutions. Uh, We will be talking about vehicle automation, Wi-Fi integration, and a bunch of really cool topics in terms of what sort of technologies are being implemented at mine sites today. Uh, Walter will talk about some of the challenges and successes uh, that he's seen, uh, Hardline's based out of Sudbury, Ontario, uh, in terms of what's happening uh, at some of the bigger mines today and how uh, the mining industry is working with the automotive industries and things like that to implement new technologies and uh, make operations more efficient so that's a great conversation we'll have that coming up a little bit later in the show on my end we will be continuing the theme of looking ahead into 2018 Uh, this week i'll be digging into some exclusive material from the london metals exchange week which happened in early november in london england Uh, the lme was nice enough to make all the panels and a lot of the content public uh, on their website so i've been digging through it and trying to pull out little bits and snippets that would be interesting for the podcast And this week, I've got about a seven-minute segment with Guy Wolf, who is the Global Head of Market Analytics at commodity broker Merrick Spectran. And this one was really interesting to me because it sort of harkens back to my academic days where we talked a lot about behavioral science, psychology, psychoanalysis, how that impacts investing behavior and markets. Um, And Dr. Wolf's going to talk about this in great detail in relation to the electric vehicle narrative. And uh, I found this super interesting. So we'll dig into this a little deeper. What I'm going to do later in the show is I'll run the comment from Dr. Wolf and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, the impact of some of these narratives and how they clash with some of the fundamental analysis that some of the big banks do um, and how some of the analysts I noted at LME were we're saying, well, some of these prices don't necessarily match with the fundamentals, but the story is more important. So really interesting stuff. The, the, the fact that this narrative is coming out now uh, in terms of metals markets is super interesting to me. Um, and uh, so we'll run that a little bit later in the show, uh, a segment with Dr. Wolf, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, behavioral patterns, narratives, uh, and how sort of big stories like Tesla and things can influence markets uh, when maybe the fundamentals don't necessarily underpine the price movement. So it's, it's super interesting stuff. Uh, I, I do recommend if anyone wants to hop over to the LME website. Website. Check out the uh, the electric vehicle segment and also the base metal debate panel because they're really awesome. And thus concludes me momentarily nerding out. But don't worry, we'll be back to that later in the show. Uh, So let's get into our news and notes, look at some commodity prices and headlines for the week. Uh, First and foremost, gold obviously was taking it on the chin, I'm sure everybody noticed, trading at $1,268.60 per ounce at the time of recording, down about 1.1%. Furthermore, silver was down about 1.6% at $16.13 per ounce. The base metal complex was not faring much better today. Copper was down 4.5% at $2.93 per ounce, per pound. Well, zinc was down 1.9% at $1.43 per pound. Uh, finally, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil was trading at $57.67 per barrel at the time of recording. Now let's dig into a few of the big headlines that are probably affecting our metal markets this week. Uh, At the top of the list, global equities are mostly higher today following the approval of the U.S. tax reform plan in the Senate on Saturday. U.S. dollar also in the green after Senate Republicans approved an 11th hour rewrite of the U.S. tax code on early Saturday morning. Both the House and the Senate must now meet in conference to work out the final set of changes. But as of right now, the tax code slashes corporate tax rates and provides temporary tax cuts to most Americans. Uh, This has broadly reignited the optimism with respect to Donald Trump's economic stimulus plans. Obviously, this is a laundry list of items which is positive for a the US dollar and b equity markets. Naturally, that means it's bad for gold. Shifting gears to the base metals, where Scotiabank notes that uh, the LME base metals are, quote, experiencing consolidation in and around current levels after recent weaknesses largely attributed to profit taking ahead of November's month end. Scotia notes several competing forces on the LME-based metals. On the positive front, renewed optimistic sentiment coming out of the CESCO Asia Conference, as well as solid China data released midweek. On the negative side of things, once again, the U.S. dollar. Scotia notes that metals continue to attract dip buying just below current price points, which the bank concludes, is providing key support and keeping prices range-bound. Scotia concludes that current consolidation could potentially be setting up metals for more of a rebound off recent lows. And that pretty much wraps up our news and notes for the week and segues pretty perfectly into our first segment with Dr. Guy Wolf, uh, as noted, Global Head of Market Analytics at Commodity Broker Merrick's Spectrum and his presentation from LME Week in early November. Uh, as I said, this is really interesting because uh, it deals a lot with Merrick's Spectrum, I guess, sort of came up with this proprietary analytics technique that uh, focuses on psychology and uh, quantitative transactions. Um, and so he'll break it down a little bit to you in terms of how they look at like micro transactions to sort of retroactively study investor behavior and what they want algorithms to do and things like that, which is really interesting. So what we'll do, uh, I will run this presentation uh, from Dr. Wolf. You can uh, dig into that a little bit, and then I'll be back after the break. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the points he made uh, and what I think about narratives and uh, you know investor behavior and things like that. Uh, so I'll run this now, and uh, we'll see you in a little bit.
1: The current excitement around electric vehicles is well-timed because it's also the 20th anniversary of the Toyota Prius. So it seems to come along every 10 years. 20 years ago, the Prius went on sale. 10 years ago, Tesla sold the first prototype Roasters. But this year, apparently, electric vehicles are impacting base metal prices for the first time. It's great that people are excited about it, but if you actually look at the percentages of global nickel demand that actually feed into battery technology, it doesn't matter. What really matters is the change in psychology. Our approach is very focused on, on quantitative analysis rather than fundamental analysis. I will sort of jokingly say that fundamentals don't matter. And it's not because they don't matter, it's simply because what really matters is not what they are, but what people believe them to be. Um, if I address the elephant in the room, um, we don't know anything. You know, predictions are very difficult, particularly about the future. And I thought a good example of nickel is in 2014, the Indonesian export ban. And that was a great example of what was perceived to be a major fundamental change in the market, which was believed very, very strongly, drove prices above $20,000 a tonne, saw a significant move in the spreads from $250 contango in the prompt December-December spread to a backwardation of $450. The argument was, was watertight, constrained supply, cost of production would make it impossible for prices to fall below $18,000 again. The reality, of course, was that inventory levels rocketed up, supply completely unforecast came out of the Philippines to replace what was lost out of Indonesia, cost curves collapsed along, as the ruble collapsed and the rest of the emerging market currencies, and prices closed 2015, near $8,000 a tonne. It's not because people didn't didn't do their work. It's just because the truth is what matters is what we believe. When people believed the fundamental story, it was positive for price action. When it was recognised that it was completely wrong, prices collapsed. If we're honest with ourselves, we don't really know what the future holds. So the way in which we try and understand what's going on is more about now casting than forecasting. It's not just about whether the forecasts of the future are right or wrong. What matters is what do people believe at the point of time. And we retrospectively explain that through pointing to fundamentals. So how do we assess what people really believe? Well, I think it's visible not in what people say or what the forecasts are, but in what they do. Or more precisely, what they now ask algorithms to do in the market on their behalf. But if you actually look at every single transaction that takes place, and it's about 150,000 separate transactions on nickel every single month, that 64% of all liquidity and a higher proportion of transactions are simply one lot in size. So when we measure what is going on in the marketplace, what we're actually really doing is analysing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of individual one lot transactions to try and understand what is going on. And it's the sort of aggregation of those micro actions that tell us what's going on with reference to uh, the 2014 scenario in in if i'm gonna to have to try and speed up a little bit here throughout 2013 we're in a textbook bear market the bottom part of this chart here shows you a measure that we focus on quite strongly which is called tr- the transactional aggression skew which simply looks at every single transaction that takes place and looks at is it a seller hitting a bid or is it a buyer lifting an offer and of course these again hundreds and hundreds of thousands of single one lot transactions sellers hitting bids is negative money flows money coming out of the market buyers lifting offers is money coming into the market the bear market through 2014 saw essentially a, a, a fairly relentless flow of money outflows the early part of 2014 we started to see an improvement as prices rallied in an, as a result of this uh, alleged change in the fundamentals however what you saw in May, May 14th and 15th was some of the most negative transaction, and still, actually still, the most negative days for transaction aggression in our database before or since. So the, so the, the response of the market to those higher prices was extremely negative. And then, as we know, we then moved into sort of the cold, hard reality of, uh, of a bear market, which is just a, a resumption of this relentless stream of selling. Apart from a sort of, there was a very short, window of a a rumored Philippines export ban as well, uh, which triggered a short squeeze. But essentially, it was just relentless selling. Why are we so confident that this time it's different? No one's ever lost money uttering that phrase in in markets. Um, The reason why we're so confident is that the patterns of behavior have changed. What this chart shows you is every single transaction that's taken place over LME Select, going back to uh, middle of 2012, aggregated up by month, so it's showing you the monthly aggregate of the net transactional flows. And in a bear market, as you'd expect, it's somewhat relentlessly negative. Even in that 2014 period, it was only actually mildly positive. What we have seen since the beginning of 2016 is data of a strength which is remarkable, even as a mirror of the bear market of 2012 to 2013. There is absolutely no doubt in our mind that we are in the early stages of a bull market. Now, we can talk about the reasons for that. Is it electric vehicles? Is it some other factor? But what matters is at the point of transaction where people vote with their wallets, the skew in favour of demand over supply is relentless. And this is my final chart, and this will hopefully show you in very stark reality what's actually going on. As you can see, the bear market, sort of the bottom heart of that slide, negative transaction aggression. even in that 2014 rally, actually a relatively feeble improvement. Yes, slightly positive, but relative to the bear market, extremely negative. Very, very clearly, since the beginning of 2016, a relentless stream of positive money flow into nickel. This is why we're so confident that we have begun a, a new bull market. Until the behavior of market participants changes, that is the status quo and that is of you. Thank you.
0: Welcome back to studio. Uh, I just found that super fascinating. He's like, we don't do forecasts. We do now, casts. But uh, I, you see sort of the the procedural way they do that is they look at, as he said, micro actions uh, retrospectively in terms of of patterns in these narratives and how the nickel, uh, quote unquote, bull in 2014 was a false run uh, and why the uh, micro action Patterns are seeing today sort of underpine the idea that there is indeed a nascent sort of bull market coming in base metals. Uh, so it's interesting uh, that relationship between the quantitative uh, and this big sort of beast. Uh, as you can sense sort of uh, Dr. Wolf's cynicism <laughs> towards this huge electric vehicle narrative we're hearing uh, all over the place these days, uh, and that we've talked about on this podcast, uh, you know, at great length uh, with many of our guests. Um, But very interesting stuff. uh, Just to talk a little bit about uh, investor behavior. And he's always saying uh, at the point of the wallet, like where people reach for their wallets. And they're looking sort of at that... You know, huge number of micro actions that take place on the nickel market every day, and and uh, you couldn't see the slides there, but uh, if you head over to lme.com, you can see the slides where they chart on uh, the daily transaction level all these nickel prices, and they're seeing this fundamental shift in behavior uh, in terms of how people are acting when they actually pay and sell uh, uh, the commodity. So, it, really interesting stuff. I, I'd recommend uh, hopping over once again to uh, lme.com and checking out some of those talks. They're really really cool, and I think that's a that's a really interesting way to look at predictive analytics, uh, not so much in terms of fundamentals, but also in terms of retrospective looking at sort of these, you know, false starts and cycles we've seen previously and looking at the underlying, uh, you know, behavior that you're seeing from, you know, algorithms even to that point, but also, you know, consumers and, uh, and market participants. So uh, interesting stuff they're doing at Merrick Spectron, I'm gonna have to dig into it a little bit more because I got just I was listening to that and I just got super intrigued by uh, sort of the methodology they're using over there. Um, and one of the other things I wanted to talk about, which was was, was really intriguing, because I ended up uh, listening to a lot of these uh, LME Week debates and, and chats and things like I mentioned, uh, and one of the underlying interesting themes uh, that, that we referenced was a lot of these analysts are like talking about fundamentals and they're like, well, some of the fundamentals don't really, you know, match up that well with what we're seeing. And, and one of the ones that they talked about that I found pretty intriguing was copper because you're hearing a lot of buzz about copper in terms of the declining head grades, the lack of exploration dollars, and sort of the short list of quality development projects. Uh, And the big question people have been asking are, okay, so when is the supply side uh, pinch or or, or, or sort of deficit going to uh, manifest itself? And uh, there was a huge discussion uh, on the base metals panel during the LME, and they put up these polls before the actual debate took place. And they're like, okay, ask the audience which base metal or industrial metal you think is going to outperform the most next year. And a lot of people predicted copper and the analysts were were sort of laughing and they're like well you know what this uh, it's not that great and one of the analysts uh, Natasha Koneva who's a metals analyst with JP Morgan actually said looking into 2018 we estimate copper has the weakest fundamentals out of all the industrial metals Uh, so it's interesting to see uh, that though copper is getting that buzz and we've seen it bounce off 250 over the last you know 18 months and upwards towards three I think the high was about 320 almost uh, we've now seen it pull back a little bit as we've seen stockpile levels rise but interesting uh, the copper is getting a lot above buzz over the medium to long term. A lot of the analysts say that the fundamentals don't really justify some of the price movement we've seen uh, and that uh, you know we should be pretty much relatively flat for the next 18 months and uh, a lot of the the analysts I talk to are really looking at copper closer to 2020 and beyond uh, than they are any time in the next two years. So so really interesting stuff. Uh, Nickel, uh, another note on nickel I got out of the LME week presentations this is again Natasha Keneva from JP Morgan uh, noted that uh, there's a new environmental restrictions on uh, Chinese mining operations. Uh, They're trying to sort of clean up their act uh, in terms of environmental monitoring, things like that in China. Uh, And that has had some impact on copper. uh, But the metal uh, that Keneva noted would have maybe the biggest impact by this sort of environmental uh, reform in China was nickel. Uh, So interestingly enough, uh, the analysts seem to be Near term, the most bullish, uh, probably on nickel in terms of fundamentals, but uh, it'll be interesting how the narrative interacts with all of that to sort of uh, drive the base metal complex next year. And then finally, our good old friend Zinc, the outperformer over the last eighteen months. I just had a quick uh, comment from Colin Hamilton at BMO, who does uh, a great regular update on the uh, global base metal community. Uh, and he noted that uh, I, you're hearing this a lot. I say this in some of my talks as well uh, that we've sort of hit peak Zinc. Uh, Bimo now says it's a question of price duration versus price upside. So how long are we going to stay above a dollar versus how much higher can we go? Uh, so interesting enough, I mean, right now where we're sitting at a, you know about a dollar forty a pound, that is truly a good incentive price for a lot of these exploration and development projects so the question now is bmo notes is how long can zinc stay up there uh, so pretty interesting stuff um, from that uh, lme week do you hop over to northernminer.com uh, and check out my uh, roundup of the lme week discussions i did comb through quite a lot of video and audio to uh, pull that all together so it was a fun time caught a lot of really cool talks and uh, stuff so i do recommend uh, if you have a few moments head over to lme.com uh, and check out some of the coverage from the event and let's head on over to the geology corner with Leslie Stokes, where we will be sort of shifting gears this week, but sticking with our overarching theme of uh, storytelling and narratives, things like that, uh, Leslie's going to be sitting down this week with author Julie Ann Miles and her husband, Ryan, to talk about their project, uh, a children's novel called The Mineral Maniacs and the Magic Hard Hat. Uh, this is a super soft spot for me. Anything that deals with minerals, Ed, or stuff like that, uh, I have infinite amount of time for. Head up to Britannia Beach, check out the Mind Museum, go under ground it's absolutely amazing they're doing great work there Uh, i was just over at at cim night uh, emceeing there and i got to meet everybody from minerals ed as well they're doing some great work um so uh, anything anytime we can do anything to reach out to the younger generations uh explain mining a bit better and uh, get that message across of the importance of the industry uh how we work with sustainability uh and uh, we'll really be fueling that uh, green revolution moving forward with the copper and uh, various other great uh, great commodities we talk about on the show week in and week out But Leslie will be sitting down to talk about all these great concepts uh, in terms of uh, how Jules and uh, Ryan are reaching out to younger generations through children's literature. Uh, So I'm really excited about this segment. I'll run it with Leslie, uh, and I will be back after the break.
2: Is leslie stokes and i'm in colorado at the Pre- precious metal summit um, symposium and i am joined here by ryan miles he is an analyst with the electrum group and ryan is a mining engineer by background and we have his wonderful wife jules miles and she's here joining us today because we are going to be talking about something pretty amazing and totally different than what i've been talking to people about for the past few days and that is a children's book that you guys have both partnered up and wrote called the Mineral Maniacs and the Magic Hard Hat. It's supposed to be for children between the age of 7 and 11 and it's got this really beautiful little illustration it kind of reminds me of um, the magic school bus. So I wanted to ask you Ryan, the mining engineer from the Electrum Group, um, where did this idea come from?
3: Well it uh, came from I was traveling a lot as a mining engineer and on planes hearing the person next to me say, What do you do? I'm I'm a mining engineer. Oh, great, data mining, what's that? I that's the next big thing. And I said, No, I deal with data, but no. Pulling rocks out of the ground, mining. And they're like, Wait, we still mine?
2: <laughs> oh <my And> <laughs> I come home
3: and tell my wife that and it happened again on the plane again. <laughs> Didn't know what mining was and, and then she came up with this idea of let's let's write a story for our kids as we were as she was reading a fantasy novel for the kids so
4: right we were reading um a wonderful series called the magic treehouse series which is uh, early chapter books for young kids teaching them about history and it takes them on all these great adventures through time and we basically thought um, you know grown-ups can be stubborn and set in their ways but kids minds are so open and willing to learn and let's just teach them using this kind of fantasy genre how to see their world and see the makeup of their world um, and see really the rocks and minerals and the work that goes into putting their lives together. So that was really the, the starting point for how we got to
2: where we are. Great. So, I mean, I don't know how many pages this is, let me just kind of flip through here. It's about a hundred and twenty-page story, mm-hmm. yeah. and maybe you can give me a little bit. One of you can give me a little bit of a quick rundown on the plot. Plot, yes. So
4: the story follows um, three fifth graders, their best friends. They're kind of the school pranksters, and they're in detention one afternoon, and they have a new detention teacher who is the science teacher, Mrs. Pebbles. And Miss Pebbles (laughs) um, has basically this very quirky, funny personality, but more important than that, she has this whole other life where she basically has access to a underground world of magical creatures made of stone, and we call these creatures the Paxteras. And the Paxteras find themselves in trouble. There's this rogue Paxtera, we call him (laughs) Sulphur. And (laughs) Sulphur, as we all know, is very overpowering and overbearing and um, Sulphur has figured out a way to steal a particular rock or mineral from the human world. And this would also mean stealing whatever items that mineral is found in. the the Paxtera King and Miss Pebbles recruit the help of these three youngsters, we call them the mineral maniacs, to basically put together the clues to uncover what this mystery mineral is. So they have to see where the mineral is mined. Um, how it is manufactured and processed, and then how it's used or found in the everyday. And they take all of those clues, they piece them together, and they have to try and stop sulfur from stealing this
3: mineral.
2: Right. So. And so what kind of lessons do you think the children will take out of this, Ryan?
3: Well, so from from the beginning, from geology, so this is going to be a seven-book series, and our first book focuses on the very first uh, part of the cycle uh, we have a, a chapter about putting together mining claims how do you get a mining claim and the next book will be more uh, exploration and uh, we're so so the technical parts of this book uh, they, they show up at a mine they show up at a um, at a mine claim where there's some prospectors that just found something that oh they're really excited about it and these kids are realizing wait what's going on and then then they show up in a, in a processing plant that has like flotation cells they, they look like flotation cells and um and then end up uh then at the shopping mall okay well how does this all fit together and, it, and it's all this just one mineral that that connects all the dots
4: yeah, we had no motive other than we just wanted to teach kids where their world came from. And I think a lot of us, grown-ups, take that for granted. Even conversations... Unintentional. So good. But we, you know, even <laughs> friends of mine, when I say our lives are dependent on mining, they don't quite understand. And I have to explain... Well, the roads that we drive on, the homes and the cars and the technology, everything comes from the minerals of this earth. And that's really what we wanted to teach kids. We wanted them to be able to see the world with those kinds of eyes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a wonderful. And how do you feel like it's been picked up now? Um, when was it published? It was published like six months ago? It? Yeah, May. so we published
3: it in May, and it's actually it was two years since she wrote the first draft mm-hmm. to when we actually thought about Publishing it ourselves. We had kind of rewritten it, and then we saw this uh, competition called Move Mining put on by the Society of Mining Engineers. It was in Denver last year, and I found out about it the day before the deadline for submissions and wrote together a quick proposal and said, I'm submitting this, and maybe we might publish. And we were one of the five finalists and ended up at the competition. Had a great time. We didn't win, but we had uh, Climax Molybdenum, a Freeport MacMurray company, mm-hmm. come up to us and say, "We're gonna, we'll, we'll fund your whole budget to publish this. We want you to publish it." And since they've, I think, they're almost to a thousand books that they've bought that they're giving out to various mines, and it has just been a big supporter mm-hmm. of us.
4: Right, cool. and a lot of people in the industry have really just been wonderfully supportive as well as educators, particularly in the STEM field, they've been really excited because there really isn't anything like this out there, mm-hmm. um, especially for this particular age group where it's so important to spark that early interest in STEM education, um, in the sciences. And and we in particular had a young girl at the center of the story um, because we know that young girls. Are often overlooked in those early years um, for their interest in the sciences. And we really wanted to spark that early love and desire for them, too.
5: Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I know
2: even at this um, conference that we're at right now, I you look at the tables and they all have like a little teddy bear on them. And before mm-hmm. I never really acknowledged them. I was like, why do we have these t- toys here? Like, yeah. what's going on? But it's because, you know, so many of us come here, we have children at home, so they go and they take that teddy bear with them so what a great wonderful Mm -hmm. alternative than just a stuffed toy but to actually give them an education through an entertaining book so thank you guys very much for joining us today and i hope you have a wonderful day thank you very much thank you so much
0: Back. Thanks again to Jules, Ryan, and Leslie for stopping by to talk to us about The Mineral Maniacs and The Magic Hard Hat. Uh, if you're interested in more info on the book, head over to themineralmaniacs.com. That's all one word. Maybe get a copy for your school library. Uh, as I mentioned, I have all the time in the world for stuff like that. I love Mineral Z. Uh, and like I said... If you haven't taken your kids up to the Britannia Mine Museum yet, do that. It's absolutely awesome. Uh, my grandpa did that for me when I was like five or something. I can't even remember. But it was. Ju- I just remember it's so fun. And they've done the big renovation now. It's just beautiful up there. Do head up to the Britannia Mine Museum if you have a chance before the weather turns. Because it's. Uh, I'm looking out the window now. It's sunny and nice. So get up there before, uh, before we get uh, inundated with that classic Vancouver rain. And that pretty much wraps up the show. Uh... Almost. Uh, I will be running our sponsor spotlight with Walter Sigelkow, the president and CEO of Hardline Solutions to wrap up the episode. Uh, this is a great chat, especially if you're interested in the implica- implications of Wi-Fi automated vehicles and related technologies, uh, sort of the hot technologies they're uh, implementing at Mine Sites right now, today. Uh, Walter's going to talk about his relationships with some of the miners, some of the other suppliers, uh, and some of the challenges they face in terms of standardization and implementation. Uh, so it's a great chat. If you're interested in sort of the cutting edge, what they're doing uh, with those automated trucks and things like that at Mine Sites, uh, Walter's the guy to talk to you. So do check out our segment with Hardline coming up. But as usual, loyal listener, thank you so much for joining us at the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Matthew Kievel, and I will talk to you next week. Welcome 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 to the Sponsor Spotlight.
1: Sponsor Spotlight.
0: Welcome in, everybody. Today, we're in downtown Toronto with the Northern Miners Progressive Mine Forum. Uh, and what we're going to be doing is a series of interviews with some of our panelists and guests today. Uh, right now, I have with me President and CEO of Hardline Solutions, Walter Sigelko. Thanks for joining us, Walter. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so first and foremost, uh, I, I did a little bit of background on Hardline and what you guys do. Uh, I know it's associated with remote control mining and Wi-Fi, but maybe if you want to fill our listeners in a little bit on, uh, on who Hardline is and what you guys do.
5: So Hardline's a Canadian company, Ontario company out of Sudbury, Ontario. You know, arguably maybe the, the to some, the center of mining in the world. Um, definitely the center of it in Ontario, anyway. When it comes to the having so many mines very local to us, where we can actually develop product and and do some experimentation. Um, so Hardline is, is located in Sudbury. We have a hundred people that work there now. Um, we're a very innovative company. This is a why we're still in business today is we're always building new product and, uh, and you know, introducing new things to the market. The company's 21 years old, formed in, the, in uh, 96. Um, the offices in uh, Salt Lake City for the U.S. market, uh, Lima, Peru for the Peruvian and some of the, the South American markets. Office in Santiago, Chile. Um, you know we're a global company.
0: We've, we've seen our industry struggle with economies of scale to a degree. The bigger the project, the more problems you have. We've seen a lot of these mega projects fail over the last bit of the cycle. Is is this something that you see maybe helping the industry cope with that challenge?
5: It brings up an interesting point, it's about the, the concept of innovation, mm-hmm. and uh, it's where innovation comes from. Innovation comes from necessity. Mm-hmm. We have a problem, innovative people get together, they fix that problem. Okay? The educational systems, colleges, universities and so on, they pump out innovative people, not so much the innovation itself. That comes from necessity. Necessity is the need to eat. Yeah. <laughs> so at the end of the day, uh, the, the the downturn in the mining industry and investing and, and these, these economies of scales that you spoke about become very important because right now the mine operators they need to produce more material. They need to be able to also get and access their raw resources in these mines to a lower grade level so that the infrastructure that's in place um, can be more utilized or utilized to, to a, a fuller extent. Um, you know, for those not, you know, for maybe laymen in the, in the mining game, uh, if, you're, if your price of gold is uh, $1,300 an ounce, and your cost of producing is twelve hundred dollars an ounce that's only a hundred dollars profit per ounce that you're going to make there's not a lot of room there. If that price drops down to twelve hundred and fifty you may not be able to mine material that you could mine yesterday so that's when they talk about reserves, that's when your, your reserves get depleted and that makes a real hit on the balance sheet of, of these mining companies you know, our job as uh, equipment suppliers or, or, uh, you know, the suppliers in the mining industry, if we can supply technologies and, and uh, the tools it takes to actually reduce the cost of mining, we will extend the life of our mines, the infrastructure that's there. Now what we gotta remember is Canadian, Canadians ourselves, we're taxpayers. We own those resources that are in the ground. So if we leave it in the ground where we can't get at it, we're losing. The country loses, that's you know, mm-hmm. every country in the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and Walter maybe just to, to wrap up here I know uh, we all got to get back to the show um, but uh, one of the other issues sort of um, big issues I read about is standardization um, and obviously as a supplier you're going to work with a wide variety of companies a wide variety of other suppliers um, so maybe if you could talk about the challenge associated with with standardization of, of machinery of of the back ends that kind of th- that kind of thing
5: very important concept yeah. uh, there's a um... The blog that I want my guys to start, uh, maybe an argument out there, but uh, arguably Hardline may have been the first company in the world to experiment with Wi-Fi underground. Uh, the reason I say that is we were experimenting with it before Wi-Fi was even ratified. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, And when it became ratified we just continued working with it all the way through. It's a standard. Okay, When you take your laptop and you check into a hotel or you walk into a conference like we're here today, there's Wi-Fi, it's a standard, it all works together. You're not, you know, just because you buy laptop A over laptop B doesn't mean that you can't use their networks, it's a standard network. Your cell phones, there's standards out there <laughs> to deal with that. And in this industry, uh, you know, when it comes to what communication system it takes to actually run an underground, or any mine for instance, proprietary networks are definitely not the way to go. We preach non-proprietary networks. Uh, We're a very small industry, you know. We like to believe that we're the center of the universe in our industry, but we're not. What it is is we're a very small piece of the industry and there's no way that we will drive the communication industry. It's driving itself. So this is one of the very key things. There's a lot of push on on using Wi-Fi underground, networks underground, standard networks. That's one piece of it. That's connectivity. You know, we expect with our cell phone, that we're connected all the time. You know, if you flip your cell phone on, you're not connected. It's it's almost like you have a heart attack. <laughs> what did I do? I stepped off the plane. <laughs> but uh, you know, when you step into a mine, it's only it's even today, it's just starting to be very connected. Uh, you know, when, when you can actually take your your cell phone underground, flip on your Wi-Fi network, and you can actually talk to uh, your supplier halfway across the world and actually have a discussion. You can send you a diagram on what you're working This is becoming standard. What's very important today, and there's a lot of discussions about it, is standardizing the protocols and the way you communicate with equipment. The automotive industry, uh, because it's very regulated, um, I mean, this is this is standard now. There's a connector on every car built. That's an I uh, can't remember the name of it now, but it's a connector. You plug into that connector and you can get it the diagnostic information on that vehicle. Mm-hmm and there's a lot of push right now for the OEMs of mining equipment to actually, you know, make a standard interface that everybody can deal with. Um, the truth of the matter is, is that there's no one person or one company that is ever gonna build everything for everybody.
0: Yes, and, and, and just so our listeners, OEMs are original equipment manufacturers. Yes, the, the yeah. big players. The you know? big players,
5: yeah. In the automotive yeah. industry, it's Ford and Chevrolet yeah. I mean, you don't yeah. matter which one of those cars you buy, you plug in the same diagnostic tool, you can get at the information. There's a little bit of proprietary stuff that each one has themselves, but all of the things it takes to actually run that vehicle, it's it's open uh, information. The autonomous work that's being done in the mining industry now is being driven by by the automotive industry. I mean, there's cars driving themselves. Uh, you know, there's so many companies working on it. It, it brings up though the. the a, particularly interesting issue that we deal with in mining. In the car, if you drive an autonomous car, we have, I don't don't know the statistics offhand, but I can't remember how many accidents we have per day in North America. You know, there's not one person. There's many people that killed every day on the highways in North America. If autonomous vehicles could cut that in half, but the autonomous vehicle caused an accident, it would be acceptable. Mm-hmm. Because you've still cut it in half. Mm-hmm. In the mining industry, because it's an industrial setting, If and this will happen, if we can cut the accidents down to from 10 accidents a year to one accident a year, but that accident involves an autonomous vehicle, mm-hmm. it, will, it will put a new hurdle in front of the, the industry that will have to be dealt with. And it will happen at some point in time.
0: Well, Walter, uh, thanks again so much for joining us. We're here today in Toronto with the Progressive Mind Forum, uh, and we have been joined by Walter Stiglkow, President and CEO of Hardline Solutions.